Hello, climate designers. Thank you for being part of this community of designers taking on climate action. We are graphic designers, industrial designers, fashion designers, software designers, illustrators, interaction designers, architects, or any other kind of designer pushing for climate action in their work. You can learn more and join us at climatedesigners.org. This is brought to you by Sarah Harrison and Mark O'Brien of The Determined. I'm super excited and thrilled to be recording this episode today. I'm sitting here with three of the original main writers of the First Things First Manifesto for 2020, and I'm excited to dive into that. Yeah, so me being one of them and the other two being Ben Gatos and Namita Daria. Um, super excited for today's interview. Two really smart people doing amazing work. And I'm going to just kind of read off their bios a little bit. So let's start with Ben first. So Ben is a Detroit-based designer, filmmaker, artist, and educator. He's conducted research in design and anthropology at Virginia Commonwealth University. That's where Ben and I met. Where, we, where he received an MFA in visual communication and design. Ben has presented his work at RISD, Harvard, and MIT's Media Lab, among other institutions. He is a co-founder and principal of Good Good, which is an interdisciplinary design firm focused on social impact. He is the founding editor and creative director at Flint Magazine, and he is the producer and designer for Sensate Journal at Harvard University. When Ben's not designing all these amazing things, Ben is the Associate Professor of Design and Chair of the Art and Art History Program at University of Michigan, Flint. Damn, I hope I got everything. <laughs> <laughs> and then along with Ben, we have Namita. So Namita is a sociocultural anthropologist and an architect specializing in new materialisms and political economy of urban South Asia. She has a PhD in anthropology from Harvard University, a master's of architecture in architecture from Cornell University, and a bachelor's of architecture from Sir JJ School of Architecture. She is currently the assistant professor of political economy at the Rhode Island School of Design. Wow. Welcome, you two. Thanks. It's great to be here. I, Likewise. Uh, I, hope I, I, I hope I did your bios justice. <laughs> you, you two seem to have a ton under your belt. And uh, yeah, like I said, I'm really looking forward to today's interview. So yeah, as Sarah mentioned, uh, the, the three of us, we had this idea a few, I guess maybe two months ago now. Um, Tell me how, how this came about. How did you get this idea and how did you all start working together on writing it? Yeah, the first things first manifesto. So as I mentioned, introducing Ben, we both went to Virginia Commonwealth University and I went to the undergrad design department. Ben went to the grad program and that department kind of, you know, specializes in or kind of prides itself in the history of design. And so as a young design student learning all things graphic design history, the first things first manifesto was obviously part of our studies. And so I when I was exposed to the first things first manifesto, I was kind of blown away by this bold statement that a handful of designers made to kind of encourage the design industry as a whole to come together and to kind of reprioritize and reconsider where and how they use their creative talents. So for anyone who doesn't know, there was an original First Things First manifesto written in 1964. It's very focused on graphic design and graphic designers and people who work in advertising and doing design as a commercial industry and sort of criticizing the work for pay and work for the man and <laughs> create designs to sell more things that you know doesn't really do any good for the world. And so it was just sort of back in 1964, taking a stand and, and saying, we want to do things that are more meaningful. 
And so what we're talking about now is firstthingsfirst2020.org. We rewrote it for today's issues and brought in a lot of climate change and diversity and justice and all of those things into the mix. And so fast forward to today, we had, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And just before that, though, I, I kind of had this idea of, you know, let's dust off this First Things First manifesto and doing some research. We found that there is two other versions, the 2000 version, as well as the 2014. And thinking about, could we rewrite this manifesto through the lens of climate? And so thinking about rewriting it, I, I obviously called up Ben. He's a good buddy of mine and a creative collaborator. And uh, maybe Ben, you want to continue the yeah story. yeah since we're doing revisionist history i'll just point out that mark had called me up <laughs> and was was talking about doing something grand for Earth day we talked about first things first and i was like i know that they've rewritten it several times and we talked about the the 2000 version and then i was like i think there, there might be another one in there and so we were we were kind of chatting about it and in that process i was like you know who would be really good to talk to would be namita i think that's in in one of our like brainstorming sessions it just all kind of gelled and then the next day i called namita up and i was like hey I've got this this climate design thing that I'd like to run by you. And Mark and I were also talking about first things first. And I don't know, Mita, I don't know if you'd heard of it before. You come from an architecture background, right? Yeah, I I I never actually to admit it, I never heard of the first things first manifesto. But I mean, when you to uh, when you introduced me to it, I was really struck by. The, the the passion but also the humor within it that it didn't take the discipline of design too seriously and believe in it's like all prescriptive qualities of changing the world but nevertheless carried a very powerful commitment to undo a lot of the structural issues and as we've spoken about over the many years I've known you as that I mean, it is, it is something that we have been exploring together in our practices as well as in our, edu in, in our pedagogy. And uh, so it was really, I felt like the manifesto was a really great place to start and sort of start a conversation, but also renew a commitment, a common commitment that the, the, the four of us share, but so many uh, designers across the world share as well. Yeah, and I think... Namita Mark and I had worked on a project before in Detroit, you know, working on a, a project in, in Detroit and Hamtramck's Bangla Town. And Namu and I had had many discussions before about many different things over many different years. And so did Mark and I. But but actually kind of putting our our thoughts into practice on that and being able to collaborate, it just there's there's something I think that each of us bring to a conversation that we actually hadn't all had together before. And it was, it was really exciting to finally, finally all talk together about one thing, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. really powerful to get your thoughts in writing in a structure like the first things manifesto sort of provided. Yeah. And if I can speak to, to that a little bit, yeah, it all came together pretty fast. I mean, Namita and Ben and I had a number of calls and then Sari, obviously you were brought in to 
do some editing and a few other people. So it was kind of whirl, a whirlwind of, <laughs> of work. And this is also right before our Earth Day event, also doing a few other things during that whole week. So, but yeah, so. We, right, right when COVID dropped too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so was, the history of, of how all of this was put together was, was a little muddy on my end. So apologize if I missed a few uh, key, key moments. But, but yeah, and then, so we, we did a soft launch during our Earth Day event, and and then we updated slightly updated the manifesto a little bit, and then we launched it just about a week ago at the time of this podcast. And at the time of this podcast, we have over 350 signatures, and you know, me being on the back end of it, seeing everyone who is signing up the manifesto, you know, clicking on on various links here and there. The, People have the option to include a link to a website or LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever. And we are seeing, or I'm seeing a very diverse mix of designers from all walks of life, young, old, multiple disciplines. So it's been really cool to see the types of people who are, who are signing the manifesto. And so there's a number of things to just quickly go over some of the kind of changes or maybe updates of the manifesto. So for one, we want to make the manifesto a living document. And so what we decided to do is to create a shared Google document open to the public where people can comment on the manifesto. So if you were to click on the link on the website, it will take you to that Google doc and it'll be, it's the same manifesto, but we open up comments so that, because we want to hear what people are thinking, what updates they might want to include in the next iteration. You know, we believe the manifesto should reflect our collective thoughts on what the world needs right now. Our world, world is constantly changing. And so uh, that's been something that has never happened in the previous manifestos. Another thing that you don't see in the previous manifestos is the um, ability to point people to a certain thing once they sign the manifesto, right? So, you know, typically you sign a manifesto, you feel good for about 20 minutes. You feel like you've done your part. And that's it. There's no kind of supportive material after that. And so the work that Sarah and I are doing with climatedesigners.org is that direction that we want to point people to. So, you know, we're not making money off this manifesto. Climatedesigners.org is a, is a hub for designers and creative professionals alike. If you go to the website, you can join our network. You can listen to podcasts. Basically, it's a place for people to find resources, methods, and even communities so that they can take this one step further after signing the manifesto on taking climate action, something we haven't really seen in the previous manifestos. And then the last thing that's kind of new to this manifesto as well is that we want to translate the document, translate this manifesto into multiple languages so that it can resonate with more designers around the globe. So we are currently in the works of translating the manifesto. What do we have? Spanish, Mandarin, Arabic, German, and Dutch right now. Those are, wow. people, those are confirmed. So people right now are translating it as we speak. So we're hoping to get those up soon. And then of course, open it up to a lot of other people. So if you're listening to this, and if you head to firstthingsfirst2020.org, and if you don't see your language and you feel like you would be able to help us translate it, reach out to us and we will share with you the steps on how to help translate it. So yeah, that's basically the rundown of how this manifesto is, is different beyond just the content uh, from previous manifestos. I think there's also a, a, a big social justice and environmental justice bend to, to this one that, that maybe the 2014 one was starting to point to, but I I feel like there's a real awakening in the various design industries 
to how our work has impacted people and and who has been really doing that work you know and you know talking about design history mark and, and about you know reading the first things first we were presented a very specific design history that I think only in, in graphic design and specifically only in the last five to 10 years has that really been taken to task in a way. And I think Namita really offered a, a really brilliant perspective on that. I mean, she's brilliant in general, but, you know, a more open kind of thoughtful way of thinking about history and about who, who really is a designer. I mean, I think that teaching at a sort of big brand name design school where students want to do a lot of things in the world, we're always sort of engaged in conversations about the big D of design versus the small D of design and ways in which we can create more ethical and politically just practices around our design and art practices. And I think what what I see in the younger generation is actually very inspiring, right? Because they have very, very strong commitments to social justice, climate change, and many of them uh, do not, and rightly so, do not see those as unconnected issues, right? But those are deeply intertwined from the very start. You know, people trace this back to the time of Columbus, you know, and the moment where climate change sort of began. I think what was interesting in writing this during the, the times of COVID was really that on one hand, it reminds us that let us hope COVID will come and go, but climate change is here to stay. And so the, it sort of reminds us of the bigger picture issues as well, but at the same time is also so relevant to the COVID crisis because the COVID crisis was born out of an ecological issue and is very much a labor rights issue. And so when you think about it, the, the sort of workings of nature and biology and questions of race and gender and labor are not separate, right? And this crisis is really highlighting that and sort of renewing the commitment towards thinking about climate design as a sort of entangled practice too. I love it. Yeah. And maybe Namita, this is a good segue into, into some of the work that you're doing at uh, RISD. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about RISD's Nature, Culture, Sustainability Studies Master's Program and your involvement within that program. Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm just one of the people working within this program, and it, it really was born in back in 2012 uh, through a group of faculty members who include people such as Nicole Marola and Damien White, and it was born through an undergraduate concentration that tried to bridge the liberal arts and, and art and design departments. And this was a time period where climate change was not as much in the news as it is today, but there was an increasing interest amongst faculty and students to work towards certain kinds of social change through their art and design practices. And so it began as an undergraduate concentration and actually became one of RISD's largest undergraduate concentrations. And 
And I had the pleasure of being the concentration coordinator for a year. So I saw the range of work. And it's a very flexible concentration other than a core course. Students can take studio, liberal arts, really experiment with the different faculty members who sort of share commitments to it. And I saw a, a range of amazing work from sculpture to you know architecture to textile design, sort of really problematizing different issues related to the crisis. And the master's program really came out of this kind of undergraduate interest to think about, and just like Ben, who's doing the U of M curriculum at the moment, it really emerged as a sort of stepping stone for undergraduate students who want to pursue interests in nature, culture, sustainability studies in a more focused manner. So uh, undergraduates who came out of university spaces with a kind of interest in ethical fashion as one of my students last year or in agroecology and sort of giving them a chance to develop a, a more focused study within an art and design context. And why these three areas of focus? Well, it, it really refers to a kind of a moment in thinking of climate change where you had people like Donna Haraway writing about the entanglements of nature and culture and not viewing them as separate entities and a rising discourse around sustainability and design. The name is, is an attempt to bridge those conversations and try to sort of create a shared practice by sharing techniques and thoughts around those two fields that were that were present at that particular time. Yeah, I love that culture is a part of it because when we think of sustainability or ecology, we just think it's nature, 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 and we're separate from that. But really, it's almost 100% human culture. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the thing with with cultural practices that one man one man's conservation is another person's sort of you know ecological devastation and so looking at local cultural practices and the ways in which issues play out differently in different parts of the world of course is you know extremely important and where are you seeing the students who've gone through the program what are they doing where are they going after after this program so this is a brand new program. So we have, uh, this is only its second year, but we did have a, a batch of very, very exciting students in our first year who largely came from art and design backgrounds and had very specific interests and wanted to develop and sort of hone in on those interests. In many cases, we get students who are interested in entrepreneurial practice or already have an entrepreneurial practice that they want to develop further and use the program as a sort of stepping stone to develop that. So for example, I had a student, as I mentioned earlier, who I supervise, who goes by the brand Natalia J. Mag, and she's an ethical and sustainable fashion designer. And so she really used the research to think about what does ethical practice mean in fashion? What are the stop gaps in the industry when it comes to sustainable clothing and where she can insert her own practice, you know, within that kind of larger chain of the fashion industry? That's very cool. I love the entrepreneurial component to the program. I mean, Sarah and I talk about this all the time, that entrepreneurship business is such a, a can play a huge role in a designer's skill set. You know, even if it's just business foundations, you know, business 101, just 
having them realize that they can take an idea that they have and actually run with it. They can actually, you know, come up with these concepts and actually create businesses that can have a bigger impact and address these gnarly issues. I would love to see, we would love to see more design schools incorporate entrepreneurship business foundations within their program. And so maybe this is a good segue into, into Ben, the work that you're doing at the University of Michigan, Flint. So you kind of ran with this climate designer stuff on your own. I don't know exactly. It was funny how, you know, we talked uh, a few months ago and you're like, oh, I'm doing this. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and, and, and so just kind of before we dive into the specifics, explain what you're doing with this climate design curriculum at University of Michigan, Flint. Yeah. I mean, so... What, what I think is really interesting about the, the RISD program that Namita is talking about is, is that, you know, RISD is a very, a very global art school. You know, you have students coming in from all around the world because RISD is, a, you know, an incredibly great design school with a rich history. And I teach at more or less a regional school, one of the, one of the um, three branches of the University of Michigan and the smallest one at that in Flint, Michigan, which as probably everyone knows, has had uh, very recent environmental justice issues with the Flint water crisis um, from 2015. And, you know, we have a lot of commuter students. The university is a, it's an urban university. So, you know, the campus is right in the middle of downtown. And it's a small city that has been greatly impacted by industry. And, and because of that, it has a legacy that it's dealing with and will continue to deal with for years to come. And, you know, I've been thinking about that for years. You know, when the Flint water crisis hit, it was like, well, what, you know, what should we do? What, what can design do in this time right now? And, you know, we've responded in certain ways. We've certainly had a very kind of like, like social justice, social impact design approach to much of our pedagogy and especially the, the design studio, which we run with our undergrads, but, you know, really thinking of like long-term change, how do we look at the post-industrial city, uh, especially in the, in the Rust Belt, but that can be seen throughout the world. So how do we, how do we look at, at how these types of cities will respond to climate change over the next 50 to 100 years. And I was, honestly, I was really inspired by what you guys were doing with climate, with the climate designers. And it finally like clicked. <laughs> it finally clicked and it was a little, it was a little late for me because curriculum changes were due in October and it was like, it was like mid-October that they were due. And like October 20th, I was like, hmm. We should have done that this year. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think I got on the phone with you and again in one of these, you know, brainstorming sessions, I was like, I think this could be something that a university like Flint could take on in a very specific way. So really looking at at urban design, urban planning, the systems that can be impacted in an urban landscape. Uh, especially one that is dealing with industrial legacy issues and how can we work kind of building upon the the social justice work that we're doing, social impact work that we're doing within neighborhoods in Flint. How can we build upon that while thinking years ahead? Well, not even just years ahead. <laughs> There's ecological issues that need to be responded to like right now in Flint. So 
So yeah, that's kind of our approach. It's like, you know, what can we do that's small? What what can we do that's that's um, larger on these urban systems? And then what? How can we think about it on a more global systems approach? Were you able to get that climate designer inspiration into this year's curriculum, or is it going into next year's? The full curriculum will launch next year, but we're able to kind of bring in some of the programmatic stuff into this year's. You know, what we've done is we've built the curriculum and it's incredibly multidisciplinary. So that's one of the really exciting things about it is that, you know, uh, some classes may live in the art, art history program. Some live in sociology, some live in chemistry, some live in anthropology, and they're all kind of integrated. And there's you know, there's faculty in each of those programs that is committed and excited about these kinds of implementations to a liberal arts curriculum. I would imagine creating something like this is no small task. Maybe can you explain how did you get this going? You know, did you have to kind of build a, a group of cheerleaders, of supporters? I would imagine you experienced a few road bumps along the way. So just kind of walk us through how you got started and kind of any road bumps or surprises you met while creating the curriculum. Yeah, and maybe maybe Namita can jump in kind of concurrently and look at scaling this up or moving this to an, an art program as well. Because we're, you know, we're a liberal arts university. So really thinking about interdisciplinarity, which is which is really challenging to do in, in siloed universities, but we're we're a bit smaller. Well we're a lot smaller. You know, we have like seven or 8,000 students, undergrads. And one of the things that I've really learned to appreciate about teaching in a, in a place like Flint is that we can get stuff done. You know, like my students who are coming out of a graphic design training are doing like working with the city's planning department and working with neighborhood organizations that have really long histories. And they're doing stuff that is then like, has significant impact on communities. And so what's been really great is like, I can make a phone call to some friends in the city or other partners and just be like, what is it that we could do? So it's been incredibly collaborative and incredibly positive. Like, <laughs> honestly, you said there's, there's probably some road bumps, but there hasn't been. You know, it's, it's been this very kumbaya show. <laughs> like, what do you think about these ideas? And yes, and, you know, a lot of yes ands. So, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of like looking at what already exists programmatically across multiple departments within the College of Arts and Sciences, but also like looking to the School of Management and looking to the School of Nursing, which post-Flint water crisis had a big impact and, and really kind of shifted how they think about the people that they serve. And then uh, our new chancellor is really interested in creating a school of technology. So thinking about what, what that could look like from a climate technology perspective too. So really trying to like get this pot simmering, which has been quite surprisingly easy to get people talking and but firing it off from there, like, what is this going to look like when we, when we implement it on the ground? I don't know, but it, but it seems really exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. I'm, I'm kind of listening as if I were someone who was in your shoes a year ago looking at my school or my program and being like, well, how can I get something like this in my program and trying to pull out any insights or nuggets of wisdom? Do you have anything that you would advise someone in that situation? 
for faculty or for students? For faculty, anyone who is, you know, working in a school as an educator, educating designers and realizing, oh, we're not actually doing any education around climate change or sustainability or anything. How do I get that implemented into my school? Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes certainly in universities that are spread out on huge campuses, it can be hard to even cross a road into a different department. But a lot of that for me came like late at night looking at the course catalog, <laughs> you know, kind of going through like, oh, what is what is environmental science have on their books? Like who's teaching that? You know, two of my my biggest partners are Victoria Morkel, who's an urban urban planner, and she did her research in Youngstown, Ohio, so kind of looking at shrinking cities like Flint and thinking about, well, you know, what does Victoria think about 50 years from now? What does she think of, like, what might happen in a, in a place like Flint? And then just calling her up and having coffee, you know, and picking her brain. And really qu quickly, we got excited about just where our ideas were meeting and where they could gain traction and what they were seeing the students really interested in. And, you know, and talking to her, then she talked about her colleague, Greg. And, you know, Greg is really looking at urban transportation issues. And so then, you know, now we're looking at systems. And yeah, so, so just, you know, kind of snowballing from there. And, you know, friends in the anthropology and sociology department, what did they think about it? And they're, they really want a methods class because they don't have a methods class right now. So like, well, if you have students that might be interested, maybe we could get a methods class finally going. So yeah, you know, I, I think people being able to see where we all could kind of meet in the, you know, in the middle ground with this main goal of, of having a localized impact on climate change. Namita, do you have any insights or tips? You know, same kind of question for anyone looking to add a new program to their school. I mean, well, unlike Ben, I was luckier in the sense that there was already a core group of faculty who had built the infrastructure that many of us newer faculty got to plug in on. But I think that one of the big takeaways for me is that there are a large, when you do interdisciplinary work, uh, it's incredibly difficult because disciplines speak different languages. Like even as somebody who teaches different designers, they don't agree on like what a grid means in every different design discipline, you know? And so I think sort of living with disagreement and using disagreement productively can be a very powerful tool with like within the university space and, and within doing interdisciplinary work that the climate crisis demands. And, and, and sort of using that productive contention to, and often uh, the confusion that results from it because you get pulled in a variety of different formats as a student, as a faculty member, you've got systems theory, you've got uh, sustainable materials, you've got political sort of issues and, and so, sort of trying a guiding students and yourself to find your space within those many streams, right? And, and I think the, there is no one way of doing climate art and design. And I think the power of a curriculum that uh, Ben is developing and, and that we have is that it gives flexibility and that flexibility can bring up a lot of confusion, but it can also create the space for newer articulations of practice. And, and I really find that very powerful. That's awesome. Very well said. 
This is great. I'm, I'm, I'm getting excited hearing about the two of, of you and the work that you're doing within these similar but very different institutions. And I'm just wondering if it's because it's 2020. Obviously, the, the climate crisis is at our front door. You have younger students who are aware of this and they want to do something about it. I just, it's, and again, this is just the two of you um, with your two schools, but it seems like there's a kind of a, a sense of urgency and a kind of a kick in the butt for schools to, to get their act together and to start cross collaborating with other departments so that they can address this, this crisis. And I'm hoping that there's other schools out there that are doing that. There is this kind of, let's get into, into fifth gear and actually make something happen. Because we all know that schools tend to be slow when it comes to any big major curriculum change or creating programs. And so I just love hearing that the two of you speak of collaboration and, and even just this simple idea of emailing someone saying, hey, you teach in this department, I teach in that department, let's make something happen. And I, I just, I'm wondering if it's just a, if it's because of just what we're dealing with right now being 2020. And, and I can only imagine what other departments in the next year or two throughout the country, other schools within the next year or two, how they're going to adapt and pivot or, you know, take more of a startup approach and, and be a bit more agile when it comes to creating new programs that are addressing our current issues. I, I want to just um, wrap up here and, and maybe ask the question to the two of you, anything that we did not cover, anything that you feel our audience would want to know about your work, whether they're our practicing design educators or practicing designers? I mean, I would just say like this whole experience of writing with you guys and brainstorming with you guys, along with the other faculty that I'm working with on the climate design curriculum, this uh, process has been, a, it's been a real joy, first of all, to be able to, to talk through ideas with some really intelligent, thoughtful people. But it's also, you know, right now, obviously, we're, we're in this time in world history in a pandemic that is it's brought a lot of hope i think you know really thinking about how what we can do both individually and when we come together to create positive impact in our world and i think that's one thing that like again as i, I said before one thing that i was really excited about the initiative that you guys were doing with climate designers it's very hopeful and I think that's all that we can do right now is be hopeful and utilize our skills and our intelligence. That's the only way, right? At least to me, that's the only way. So it's been very inspiring. Yeah, I think that one of the, this has been like such a joy in terms of like being in the middle of a crisis and having people who are, and being part of something where people are committed to some greater good and I have to say that what, one of the things that I'd, I'd love to reiterate about the First Things First manifesto is its sort of commitment to production chains and thinking about like labor chains. And I think sitting in the middle of COVID with all the, well, all the essential workers putting themselves at risk, I think it really you know, pushes us to reimagine what design means for us and what a designer who a designer is and what their commitments are to people who build their work or do that, you know, or create their work. And uh, yeah, I think that this is a moment where like 
we have the opportunity to fundamentally dissolve what we, we sort of perceive as design and recreate it uh, because this is a kind of critical event for many in the you know who haven't been through critical events let's also acknowledge that many have been through a number of crises and ongoing crises in their lives and so I mean, think it's a real opportunity for designers to think about where they want to go and how they want to build their practices from here on. Here, here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, this has been amazing. This has been, yeah, super thought-provoking and inspiring to, to get a sense of the work that you two are doing. So we definitely appreciate the time. Where could, where could people find you on the web to learn more about your work? You can find me on the RISD website, so the, in the Liberal Arts Division faculty pages. Yeah, and you can find some more of Good Good's work at goodgoodland.com. And I think my Twitter is goodgooddetroit. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah. We're all <laughs> Keep fighting the good fight. You guys are amazing. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out climatedesigners.org to sign up for email updates. And while you're there, you can check out other stuff. You can create a profile page highlighting your climate-related work, or you can seek out climate jobs and other resources to boost your climate design career. Or for design educators, find resources to bring climate action into your classroom. Yeah, join the conversation on social media with a hashtag I am a climate designer or hashtag climate designers, all one word. Take my for granted.